Well, I cannot um, tell you guys what an honor it is to be here at one of my favorite places on our Southeastern Seminary. I don't know of anywhere that combines gospel and mission, uh, theology and methodology, ancient and modern, and any other two polars that you can think of um, together as well as Southeastern Seminary does. Um, good to be with uh, good friends like Tony Morita, who is personally one of my favorite preachers. Uh, when our guys ask me who they should model their preaching after, Tony is always on the short list uh, of names that I give to those guys. So I'm very honored to be here with you. Um, as Tony mentioned, uh, Church I Pastor is not far from here. Uh, here in the Triangle, we have the privilege, uh, the honor of having a number of college students that are um, a part of our church somewhere. Uh, our estimates are about a quarter of the people that are there on a weekend are college students. Uh, which I always tell people means a few things about us. Uh, number one, we are, relatively speaking, dirt poor as a congregation. I'm sure you can appreciate that. When college students uh, started to come to our church, it was 2003, and I remember that our attendance in the space of like three weeks went from like, we had five college students visit one week, and the next week there were 300, and the next week there were like 500. So our attendance tripled, and our weekly giving went up $13.48 during that same time. <laughs> Um, one of my favorite memories as a pastor is in between two of our services, one of our ushers comes into my green room area, and he's got, a, he's got an offering bucket, and in it is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from a college student with a little note on it that said, silver and gold, have I none, but such as I have, give I unto you. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we're, we're not that rich as a congregation. Uh, church unity um, is pretty much non-existent around this time of year uh, for reasons that should be obvious if you are from this area. Uh, I one of, uh, was standing backstage not long ago getting ready to walk on stage to do a church service with one of our worship leaders who was a Duke University student, and he has on a shirt that says, Go to Hell, Carolina. And I was like, bro, you cannot lead worship with a shirt that tells anybody to go to hell. Uh, he said, he said, pastor, you, 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 you know, love the sand, hate the center. I'm like, I'm not even sure what that means, uh, but you cannot lead. So he takes a piece of duct tape and he, and he put, he write heaven on it. So he said, go to heaven, Carolina. And he said, I'm only going to wear this for this worship set. Uh, so church unity is uh, kind of non-existent. Um, but the thing that we've realized is that we've got a lot of potential people that can discover the role that they play in the kingdom of God, which is in part what that video that you saw um, was just about. Um, our church, we tell our college students, we ask them for two things. One, would you give us 10 weeks uh, during one of your summers so that we can uh, study theology together and uh, do an internship and mission and take mission trips? And then would you give us the first two years after you graduate to serve on one of our church planning projects somewhere around the world? Uh, the two years after you graduate, we call that our Mormonization strategy of, uh, of reaching the world. Um, but God has uh, given us um, an extraordinary number of people um, that are willing to just say, God, um, hey, I, I, here's, what, here's what we say it. You got to get a job somewhere, right? You got to build your career somewhere. Why not get it somewhere where you can be strategically used in the mission of God? We tell our, you know, our students, we're like, God did not make all of you to be pastors or writers or singers or things traditionally associated with full-time ministry. Um, some of you, he made dentists and lawyers and architects or, or whatever, but we always tell them, whatever you, whatever you do, do it well to the glory of God, and then do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God, because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. God designed you in a way to do something on earth that would benefit his creation. To be a follower of Jesus means that you leverage that in a way that you can be a part um, of, of the advancement of Jesus' mission on earth. Um, we sent out 113 last year in four domestic church plants. Uh, most, of the who's went on, most of the 113 would have just been college graduates who, again, said, um, I got to get a job somewhere. Um, lot of, there's lots of factors that will go into where you get a job, right? Um, why is it that where you make the most money is the primary factor? I always tell our students, Lot chose where he lived and pursued his career based on money, not ministry. It did not turn out well for Lot. Um, so make ministry the primary category in where you do that um, and, to, um, and, and pursue um, it strategically for the mission of God. Um, if you think that we could be helpful to that end, um, it, that we have a booth out, the Summit Network booth. You could stop by in one of your breaks, and we'd be happy to talk to you about that. There's a lot of great organizations out there, but we're um, privileged to be, um, to be a one of those. The theme of this weekend is the glory of God. 
And so I want to spend my time talking with you about how God wants to use you to spread his glory in the earth. Uh, when I gave the title of my talk to uh, the people that were, you know, going to, and they said, well, Tony's already giving that exact same talk. Uh, so I didn't change my talk. I just reworded the title. Uh, so um, my original title was going to be something about the spirit of God and ordinary people, but they had to take off ordinary people. But anyway, I want to talk about what I believe to be one of the most neglected doctrines and really all of Christianity, particularly if you are from a Baptist background, I would say this is the most neglected doctrine or one of them um, in, 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 in Baptist life, but one that is absolutely essential if you are going to understand what it means for you to be used in the mission of God. It is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and open it to John chapter 16. See, a number of you actually brought real Bibles, actual paper Bibles. That's fantastic. Uh, my pastor growing up used to always say the sweetest sound in all of his hearing, his ears, was the sound of the ruffling of the pages as people opened God's word. Um, I never, I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but I never get to hear that anymore. I, I get to see the warm glow of God's word on people's faces sometimes. <laughs> Uh, so if you're super cool and wear skinny jeans like Tony, um, pull out your iPad, turn your Bible on. Uh, you find John chapter 16. I'm really not going to be in one major text um, for the whole time. I'm going to be kind of all over the place, but John 16 is probably a pretty good place to anchor there. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, most Christians fall into one of two categories. Uh, on the one side, you've got people who are, could I say, obsessed with him. Uh, they seem to always interpret being filled with the Spirit or experiencing the Spirit as some kind of, you know, weird coincidental phenomenon. Like, you know, you know like, oh, I was driving down the road and I was praying about whether or not to ask that girl out when I saw um, a billboard and the background color of the billboard was the same color as her eyes. And the last two digits of the phone number were the same as her age. Just at that moment, my favorite Josh Baya song came on the radio and bam, I knew that God was telling me to ask her out. And you're like, I'm not sure that's the Holy Spirit. That sounds like the beginning of a restraining order. Um, so uh, you, you, maybe you've known people that it was always just weird like that, or it's some kind of just weird, just sort of, you know, this experience that's really mystical. Um, early in my ministry, I was um, at a pastor's conference, a small one, um, with a, a very well-known national evangelical leader. If I said his name, you would recognize it. But at the end of his talk, he, he asked, he said, if anybody wants to receive more of the Holy Spirit, well, why don't you come down here and I'll you know, lay my hands on you and pray for you and you can receive more of the Holy Spirit. Well, I am always up for more of the Holy Spirit. So I walked down, there was about 30 of us along the, you know, the front there. And I was on this end and I noticed that he, as he started on this end, as he would pray for people, um, they would just collapse on the floor and sometimes they would, you know, shake a little bit. And I watched as he, I mean, I'm, cause I got like 30 people to watch before he gets to me. I'm noticing that before everyone falls, he seems to like, like push them. And I'm sitting there watching him, and I'm like, Lord, honestly, if you want to knock me flat on my back, if you want to rip my shirt off and tattoo the Apostles' Creed to my abdomen, I am ready to receive it. But I am not letting that man push me down. So he comes over, and he gets to me, and he starts praying, and he um, reaches up, puts his hand on my forehead, and uh, I could feel the pressure of his hand starting to push, and I'm like, bro, that is not you. I mean, that is not the Holy Spirit. That's you. And so he's pushing, so I start to push back. I kind of like... And he's pushing and I'm pushing and we're just kind of, you know, for a, a moment. Then he muttered something about me being stiff-necked and he just moved on to the next person. Uh, but maybe you've had, um, you know people like that, that it just seems like that's what it means to interact with the Holy Spirit. There's another group, maybe in reaction to that group, um, that uh, neglects the Holy Spirit altogether. Uh, they believe in him, but they believe in him the way that I believe in or relate to my pituitary gland right? I, it's, I'm glad it's in there. I know it is essential for something. I don't want to be without it, but I don't, I don't interact with it. I don't have a relationship with it. Uh, you know, growing up, my, we believed in the Holy Trinity, but uh, functionally our Trinity was God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Bible. Um, that's how we intersected and interacted with God. But I want you to think about this. There was something so important about the Holy Spirit that Jesus makes a statement like he does in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, he says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your, what's that next word? Advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. To their advantage? 
Can you imagine how absurd that must have sounded to those first disciples when they heard it? How awesome would it be to walk around with Jesus Christ for three years? Every night by the campfire, you can just debrief the day with him. You got a theological question, bam, Jesus answers it. You go to a party and they run out of checks mix, bam, Jesus multiplies the checks mix. Uh, Your dog dies, bam, Jesus raises your dog back from the dead. Your cat dies. Jesus digs a hole to help you bury the cat, right? I knew I was among friends. All right, that's probably not exactly what it would be like, but you can just imagine what it would be like to have, the whole, to have Jesus Christ in the flesh as your companion and he is telling you it is to your advantage that he go away. How excited would you be if you got a call on the way home that said, hey, bad news, our pastor's resigned. Good news, we got a new pastor, it's Jesus. The son of man is going to come down and be our new pastor. That would be an upgrade probably from your current pastor, right? I mean, if he's here, there's no offense intended by that. How awesome, how excited would you be that Jesus Christ would be your pastor? Are you as excited this evening that you were leaving this room with the Holy Spirit of God in your heart? Because Jesus said, if you really understood what he was offering you in the Holy Spirit, you would be more excited at what you had in the Holy Spirit than you would if you had even Jesus beside you. The Spirit of God inside of us, he said, is an advantage to you than even the Son of Man standing beside you. Or think about this, in Luke chapter 24, right after Jesus gives his apostles what we now call the Great Commission to take the gospel to every nation on earth, he tells the only people in the world who know and understand the gospel that the first thing that they are to do after he leaves them is, is what? Nothing. I want you to wait. I want you to wait and not so much as lift a finger toward the completion of the Great Commission until I send the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Millions of people around the world dying without Christ. And he tells the only people who know the gospel, do not open your mouth, do not say a word, do not do anything until he comes. What was so important about the Holy Spirit that even the Great Commission could wait for him to come. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons tonight, and then I'm going to try to give you some ways that you can understand and experience what the Holy Spirit has for you. But here's the question. I'm going to give you two answers to it. What was so crucial about the Holy Spirit? Here's number one. Victorious Christianity is Christ in you. Jesus had taught them that victorious Christianity was not what they would do for him. It's what he would do through them. If you flip back over in your Bible, one page to John chapter 15, verse 5, there's a very familiar verse. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing's a big old word in Greek, and it means exactly what it means in English, nothing. I assume that Jesus uses it on purpose. You see, most believers, listen to this, most believers see salvation as something done by Jesus for us. But they see sanctification or growing in Christ's likeness as something done by us for him. But Paul said, Jesus said, that apart from him, you could do nothing, that it was not what you were going to do for him. It was what you were, he was going to do through you. So Paul would say, it is Christ in me. That's the hope of glory. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, it is Christ who lives in me. It is Christ in me. It is Christ through me that is the victory in the Christian life. We had a, a, one of our college leaders, um, a guy who led um, for three solid years in our college ministry, uh, a bright guy, very good writer, had a, a, a bright future in, in, in ministry, we believed, who came into my office his senior year of college, and he sat down in front of my desk, and he started to weep. And he said, I've had a secret now for about two and a half years that I have never told anybody. He said, I have struggled against this. I have tried to get over this. I've done every single thing. He said, I have a same-sex attraction that has led me to a severe addiction to internet pornography that has resulted in a fairly regular string of hookups with random guys that I meet in chat rooms on the internet. He said, every time it happens, he said, I feel so bad about it and I repent. He says, and he said, pastor, he said, JD, I've done everything I know to do. I've memorized scripture. I've read all these books. I've listened to sermons. He said, I just need help. And so I did what we were supposed to do. I mean, what, what, you know, we, we, we read more books together. We set up an accountability structure. We pulled the internet out of his house. We did everything that you're supposed to do. And every single thing we did, he would always have the same result. He'd go for a, a few weeks and he'd be fine. And then he'd just kind of fall back into his old 
his old ways. After he graduated, he, he, he um, had an opportunity that took him to another state, and I got to see him not too long ago. And when I first laid eyes on him, when I saw him for the first time in a long time, I opened the door and looked at him, and I could tell immediately that something had changed. And I said, I, I, I said, Dustin, what is, what's, I was like, you've, God's given you victory over this, haven't, hasn't he? And he said, well, he said, it's still a struggle. He said, I suppose it will always be, at least here on earth. He said, but yes, God has given me victory. And I said, well, tell me, what is it that, what changed? What did you learn? How did you overcome this? He said, it wasn't anything I learned. He said, I was mentored by a man who didn't teach me a single thing I did not know, but this man engaged with and interacted with the Holy Spirit in a way that I had never heard being at the Summit Church for four and a half years. He said he interacted with the Holy Spirit. He moved in him. It's like he engaged with him. He said, for the first time in my life, I saw the Holy Spirit as a person. And then it finally dawned on me that God was not asking me to go and overcome this addiction for him. He was asking me to yield myself to him so that he could overcome it through me. He said, that's what made the difference. Because victorious Christianity is not what you are going to go and do for Jesus. It's what Jesus does through you. Here is number two. Here is number two. Effective ministry is Christ through you. Victorious Christianity is Christ in you. Effective ministry is Christ through you. Um, Luke, um, the gospel writer Luke, opens up the book of Acts in a very strange way. Here's what he says, Acts 1.1. The former book that I wrote, the gospel of Luke, um, I recorded all that Jesus, listen to this, began to do and to teach. Now, to say that Jesus began to do and to teach something in the gospel of Luke implies that he is now continuing to do and teach in the book of Acts. You get that? It wasn't that Jesus was doing and teaching in the gospel of Luke. Now he's gone to heaven and now the church is doing and teaching in his place. It's that Jesus was doing and teaching through his flesh and blood body in the gospel of Luke. But now he is doing the same doing and teaching through his church in the book of Acts. That's why I believe Jesus had them wait and not do anything before um, he came in the Holy Spirit because until he came, there was nothing they could actually do for him that would make any difference anyway. Jesus had taught his disciples numerous times and in numerous ways that he could accomplish more in a few minutes than they could accomplish in, in 10 lifetimes. Maybe the best example of this is the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 when um, Jesus turns to a crowd of um, 5,000 men, scholars say probably somewhere around 15,000 people, and he says they're hungry. Then he turns to his disciples and says, what are we going to give them to eat? One of the disciples named Philip says back to Jesus somewhat sarcastically, what are we going to give them to eat? We could all go get jobs, Jesus, and work for eight months, and we'd have just enough if we pulled all of our money to buy each of them a, a donut hole and a cup of coffee. What do you mean, what are we going to give them to eat? If you've been around church, you know the story. Jesus takes the the little, little boy's lunchable, Hebrew lunchable, a Hebrew happy meal. And he takes it and he multiplies it so that not only is that crowd fed, there's 12 baskets left over. That's the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospels. You want to know one of the reasons that's the only one? Because Jesus was giving them, I believe, a paradigm for ministry because they weren't going to stand in front of 5,000 physically hungry men. They were going to stand in front of millions of people who were spiritually starving without the gospel. And he did not want them thinking that that was something that they would work up the resources to fix on their own. He wanted them to understand that he could accomplish more to fix world hunger or to solve the problem of world evangelization through one act of obedience than he could if all the apostles got together with all the richest people in the world and put all their efforts together and worked for 10 lifetimes. The question that he wanted his apostles asking is not, what do I need to go do for God as if it sat on their shoulders? The question he wanted them to ask is, what do I want you to do and what am I going to do through you? So when you get to the book of Acts, you see a situation that's nearly identical, Acts chapter 8. Here you got a, another Philip, different Philip, but you got Philip who is preaching in a town called Samaria. And Acts says that lots of people were getting saved. Crowds of hundreds and, and thousands were listening to him. And the Spirit of God inexplicably says to him, I need you to leave there. And I need you to go out about 150 miles away and stand on this little dusty road where nobody is. And Philip is confused. He's like, what do you mean? I mean, the, the ministry's great here. Lots of people are getting saved. Spirit of God doesn't give an explanation. Philip obeys. He goes there. He stands. He probably waits a few minutes thinking, what am I doing here? When suddenly he sees a chariot coming in the distance. And in it is a man we now refer to as the Ethiopian eunuch, whom Philip leads to Christ. 
Eusebius, the church historian, says that that Ethiopian eunuch would go on to be the foundation of the church in Africa, a foundation which we still reap benefits from today. What is being taught there? That the Spirit of God can do more through one act of obedience by a layperson, by the way, because Philip was not an apostle, than all the apostles could accomplish in 20 years of mission trips. What he wants from us is not for us to say, hey, what do I, what does the world mission need? That's the wrong question that we could be asking. The question he wants us asking is simply, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do? Because Jesus didn't say, go fix the world for me. Jesus said, follow me. And there's a big difference in those two. You see, most of us relate to Jesus like an absentee teacher. Remember, remember when you were in school, an absentee teacher who you know, gives you an assignment and leaves the room and you've got like 20 minutes to get it done because you know, she's coming back. That's how we think. We're like, well, you gave us a Bible. We got to learn it. We got to spread it all over the world and you're coming back and we better be ready. That is not the model that Jesus gave us for ministry. He said, you can't do anything anyway. I just want you to yield yourself to me and obey because one act of obedience, I can accomplish more of that than you could in 10,000 lifetimes. The book of Acts is the incredible account of what happens when ordinary people, sorry, Tony, yield themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I taught through the book of Acts a couple of years ago, and, and one of the things that just kept smacking me in the face is how Luke seems to go out of his way to show you that the greatest gospel advances in the book of Acts don't happen through apostles. They happen through ordinary people. I give you a couple of examples. Acts chapter 8, if you want to flip there in your Bible, go ahead. But Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, by the way, is the first time the gospel leaves Jerusalem. Remember Jesus had told them in Acts 1.8, go take the gospel to every people on earth. Seven chapters later, they're all still hanging out in Jerusalem singing Kumbaya. So God raises up a layman named Stephen who preaches a really bold sermon. It incites a persecution. The boldness of the layman, Stephen, brings on this persecution. Acts 8.1 says this, as a result of the persecution, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. See the little detail there? That's an important detail. Except the apostles, they just stayed right in Jerusalem. Verse four, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Do not miss the significance of that. The first time the gospel went out into the world, not a single apostle was involved. It was a layman who preached the sermon that caused the riot. It was lay people who carried the gospel. What that means is that for those of you listening to me right now who do not feel called to do what I do in full-time Christian ministry, it means that you are the tip of the gospel spear. And we usually get that backwards, don't we? We think that you come to support me, but in actuality, I come to support you. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, Luke continues to go out of his way to show you that the gospel keeps going forward faster through lay people than it does apostles. Um, there were three great churches planted in the ancient world, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. The historian Stephen Neal says what's remarkable is that we don't have the foggiest idea who planted any one of those. The planting of Antioch and Rome are recorded in the book of Acts, and they both read the same way. Acts 11, Luke says that, that there were some, some brothers that went to Antioch, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and many people believed, and they planted a church. Luke, what was the name of, of, of those brothers? Because that's, that became the most important church planting center for two centuries. Luke doesn't even record their names because he probably doesn't even know. They're not important enough to remember. Their names wouldn't ring a bell even if we mentioned them. It was complete. It was just, Luke just said, ah, oh, some dudes. Some dudes, they were filled with the spirit. I don't even remember their names. They're not important. Paul, Acts 28, is trying to get the gospel to Rome. He wants to plant a church in Rome. Why? Because he wants to preach Christ where Christ has never been named. And he knows that Rome is the capital of the world. And if he can get the gospel into Rome, then the gospel will go from there through the rest of the world. So Paul finally gets to Rome. After all the things he goes through, he finally gets to Rome. And when he walks through the city gates in Rome, Acts 28, 15, he is greeted by, Luke's word, the brothers, the dudes, just some dudes who'd been there a long time before him and already got the church established. You understand what is being taught there? What is being taught is that the future of the Christian movement is not in mega pastors with mega churches and megaphones and mega ministries writing books. It's ordinary people that are filled with the Spirit of God that are going out with the Spirit of God and making disciples everywhere they go. That's what the future of the Christian mission movement is. Let me tell you something fascinating. I read this the other day. If you add up all the Christian workers, Christian missionary workers in the 1040 window, you know what the 1040 window is? 
Um, 10th and 40th parallel in between that is where most of the unreached people groups in the world are. It's where the majority of, of unreached people live. Um, 1040 window. If you add up all the evangelical missionaries from every denomination at work in the 1040 window, 40,000. The number of Americans in secular employment in the 1040 window, 2 million. Now, statistically, 30-some percent of Americans identify as a born-again Christian. Let's write off two-thirds of them as just worthless, a waste of skin, all right? And so let's just think 10% of that 2 million. I feel like that's a conservative estimate. If just 10% of that 2 million were disciple-making disciples filled with the Spirit of God, you would increase the church planting force in the 1040 window by 600% without spending another dime. The future of the Christian mission is not in us only giving more money and raising up more mega pastors. It is ordinary people filled with the Spirit that are carrying the gospel with them where they go. I think of my father here. My father uh, worked for years as a plant manager in a textile factory. A couple of years before he retired, his multinational corporation rehired him to go overseas to a country in the 1040 window where they were opening up a plant. And so they sent him, they paid his salary. My dad, who is a, a spirit-filled man, a godly businessman, never been in full-time ministry in his life, went over there, rubbed shoulders with businessmen in that part of the 1040 window that I could never get close to opening up an English corner. And there's nothing wrong with English corners, but he got next to some high-level businessmen, led a couple of them to Christ didn't cost the church a dime. I think of a kid in our church who graduated with a sports marketing degree on the fast track in a major sports marketing company, found out that we had a church plant in the Middle East and that his company, his multinational company, had a small outpost in the Middle East near where we were planting the church. And he said to his boss, I'd like to be transferred over there. His boss said to him, that is a terrible career move. We do not send people that are on the fast track to go serve in the Middle East. He said, I have my own reasons. And so they sent him. He went there and joined our team. Didn't cost us anything as a church. He joined the team, worked with them and the church planning team, uh, learned the business, came back to the United States, resigned from his company, um, then went back over on his own and started his own company there in the Middle East, where not only is he still a part of the church planting team, he also supports people there on the church planting team and supports the effort that they're doing. You see, I'm trying to help you understand that God has given you a gift. Some of you, it is a secular gift. Some of you, it's a gift like me. But all of you have a role that you are to play in the kingdom of the God, kingdom of God. I know that some of you are listening to me and you are saying, no, not me. I'm like completely, I'm shy. I'm not talented. I got no potential. Yes, but you have the Holy Spirit. And don't forget that. In fact, Jesus said this. This is another amazing thing. He said... He said, do you know that the person who has the Holy Spirit has more potential for power than the greatest prophet who ever lived? You know who the greatest prophet, according to Jesus, was? Starts with J, rhymes with on the Baptist. John the Baptist, that's right. Jesus said, Luke 11, get this. Yeah, but I tell you the truth. He said, none great, ever been born among women greater than John the Baptist. But I tell you the truth. The one who is least in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist, right? I mean, listen, somebody in here right now is the least in the kingdom of God in this room, right? I'm not being mean. I mean, mathematically, that has to be true. You're the least talented. You're the least, you know, the least scripture. You got the least potential. Right now, you're like, I think it's me. And God in heaven is going, yep, it's you. And you're at the bottom of the pile. Even if that's true, you have more potential than John the Baptist. Why? Well, because you know the truth about the resurrection and you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And what he needs now is not the ability of great orators. He needs the availability of ordinary people that he uses to do absolutely extraordinary things. Jesus, as I've heard said, did not save you to sideline you. He didn't save you to become a fan in a game that's going to be played by other people. Jesus has a prime spot for you in the starting lineup, regardless of what your gifting is. I preach to a large church, and um, sometimes when I'm looking out at that church, I, I kind of feel like a, like a quarterback in a, a football huddle. 
right? I mean, we're just, you know, getting out of football season. So ima- you know, this is how I feel. Like, imagine I'm Tom Brady, okay? So um, I don't know why, just, you know, it's not that hard. No, um, I, so I'm, I'm the quarterback, I'm Tom Brady, and I'm calling the play. And all these people are like, and then I get done calling the play and they're like, man, that was a good play. Wow, man, that was, that was one of the best plays I've ever heard. I wrote it down. And then they all run over and they go back and they sit over there on the bench, leaving me all by myself on the field to deflate the ball on my own. No, <laughs> he didn't do that. Um, and then like after a couple of minutes, they all run back on the field and they're like, all right, call us another play. I call them another play and they're like, oh man, man, that was good. You're the best play caller in this city. I'm going to podcast that play later. I'm going to get my friends to podcast that. That's awesome. I got chill bumps when you were giving that play. And then they run back over and they sit back down on the bench. And we do this four, five, six, 52 weeks a year. And finally, I want to look at him and say, fellas, run the play. The point is not me calling the play. The point is you running the play. It's actually irrelevant how well I call the play because the point is you running the play in the community because the spirit of God doesn't want to pour out all his power just through me as I preach. He wants to pour it out through you and the community. Did you know this? There are 40 miracles in the book of Acts, 40. 39 of them happen outside of the church. You know what that means? It means I as a pastor have access to 140th of the power of God. That's probably not good hermeneutics, but you get the point. It means that the spirit of God, his greatest acts happen through ordinary people just yielded to him. We spend so much time asking questions like, am I called? Am I called? We, we have what I have referred to at our church as the Cheerios method of discerning the will of God. You, you know that? You stare into your Cheerios and you wait on it to spell something out. You know, oh, Afghanistan. Oh, I get it. You know, um, I've stared at my Cheerios for years. All they've ever spelled out is, ooh, that, that's it. Okay. Are you called? The answer is yes, you are called. You are called to engage in the Great Commission. The reason you know that is because that's what Jesus said when he called you to be his follower. Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. The call to be engaged in the mission, the call to leverage what you have in the mission is not some secondary mystical experience. It was the original call to follow Jesus. So you don't need a voice. You got a verse. You read what the word of God says, and then you ask, listen, the question is no longer if I'm called, the question is only where and how. How would your life change if tonight you begin to assume that you are called and that the only question now is where and how? We talk about finding God's will. (laughs) It's not lost. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God says, you're sitting around asking me what my will is. You know what my will is. I sometimes think it's like if you're walking through downtown and you walk by a railroad track and there was a kid, a young child on the railroad tracks who was um, crippled and you could hear a train coming. You see the train coming and you see the kid laying there and you get down on your knees and you, Lord, what is your will in this situation? Would you give me a, just, a, just, a, just a piece about, about what to do? The Lord would send an angel down from heaven to punch you in the throat and say, you know what my will is, pick the child up. There's 2.2 billion people in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. The gospel makes the difference in people going to heaven and hell. We know what his will is. The question is not if you're called, the question is only where and how. So you do what you do well for the glory of God, but then you do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God that is the will of God. You got to get a job somewhere. Why not get a job where God's doing something strategic? This year, we had 50 of our college graduates uproot and move to Wilmington, North Carolina to help plant a church there. They had to get a job somewhere. They went there. We interview a lot of our seniors, and we will sit across the table from them, and we will look them in the face, and we will ask them, would you be willing to give us a blank check for two years? And let us tell you where to pursue your job, or at least make a strong recommendation. And we ask them for that, and they end up making up that 50 that, I, that I'm talking about. Your church may not do that, but I guarantee you, if you went to your college pastor or your pastor and you said, I'm going to give a blank check to you, you tell me, you help me determine where my life can best be used in the mission of God, they would come up with an answer. All right. For those two reasons, Jesus said having the Holy Spirit inside of us was better than even Jesus beside us. Thus, 
One of the most important questions that we'll ever consider is how do we access the power of the Spirit and how do we experience His leadership? All right? So let me give you a couple answers to this. I may, I may not give you both. I may just do one. Here's what I would say. One, we got to learn to hear His voice and recognize His presence. You got to learn what the Holy Spirit's movements, how to discern what it means to follow Him. Now, full disclosure, as Tony mentioned, I did write a book on this, came out last year. I'm not doing this to promo a book because that's really tacky. Plus, somewhere in the Bible, it says that when you self-promote, an an angel loses his wings and a puppy dies in heaven. And so I don't want to do that. I want to be responsible for that. I will tell you that all the proceeds from books that I sell go to feed hungry children. Mine. They live in my house. Uh, So you can feel good about it if you purchase the book. But um, I I, I just mentioned that because I'm going to give you some things, and I'm going to kind of cover them at about 20,000 feet. It's going to be just enough to frustrate some of you. But I wanted to give you the big scope of it so that you can begin to get into this question. And... um, if you, it intrigues you and you're too lazy to study the Bible on your own, then yes, you can get the book and, and figure it out. But let me, give you, let me give you a handful of ways that we encounter the Holy Spirit. A, in the gospel. In the gospel, the biggest surprise of the book, as I was studying, is that the primary place that we experience the power of the Spirit is in the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 3, he said, how'd you receive the Spirit? Oh, when you heard the gospel and believed? Well, how do you think you grow in the Spirit? You grow in the spirit the same way you began in the spirit. You continue to hear the gospel and continue to believe. So to the Ephesians, Paul would say in Ephesians 3, I'm praying that you would come to understand how wide and high and long and deep is the love of God for you. Because then when you know how high, wide, long, and deep the love of God is and you feel it in your soul, then he says you will be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness of the Spirit comes as you become more intimately aware of the love of God for you. Because the Spirit of God takes the love of God in the gospel and he makes it come alive in your heart. Old British pastor named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the best description or the best depiction in the Bible of someone full of the Spirit is in the Old Testament. It's Moses. He said, you got Moses in Exodus 34 who asked God to see a glimpse of his glory. Do you remember this story? God takes Moses, puts him in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand, passes by, so he's in his presence, and then as he's passing by, he declares his name to him. I am a God who forgives. I'm a God who shows mercy. I'm a God of justice. He declares the gospel to him. And Lloyd-Jones says, there it is. When you are in the presence of the Spirit of God, he begins to declare the name of God to you so that it comes alive in your heart. He compared it to, the, um, uh, to a father walking along with his five-year-old son. I have a five-year-old son. I'm walking along with him. All of a sudden, I look down at him, and he looks so cute, and I pick him up, and I spin him around, and I throw him up in the air safely, and I catch him, and I blow a raspberry in his neck, and I say, you're my boy. I love you. I'm proud of you. Um, I'm always going to be your daddy. Lloyd-Jones says, in that moment, is he any more my son than he was the moment before? Legally, no. He hasn't changed sonship status, but in that moment, he said he feels it more, right? He said, that's the fullness of the spirit is you begin to feel your sonship so that the spirit of God rises up from your heart and you begin to say, my daddy, I'm a father. He says, and that sense of the presence of God is what liberates you from sin. It is when the spirit of God turns your eyes upon Jesus and you look full in his wonderful face. Then the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I was with a, a group of college students in our church. Um, they were part of a fraternity, and they invited me to do a Bible study in their fraternity house. Against my better judgment, I did. And so I went, and I drove out, and I sat in their fraternity house, and it was on sexual temptation. Surprise, surprise. And so um, we're sitting around the room, and I made the statement to them, kind of offhandedly, that they could turn their sexual desire on and off like a light switch. You should have seen the look on their faces when I made that statement to them. One of them was like, bro, we knew that your body changed when you got older, but we had no idea. This is what happened when you turned 40. And I said, no, I, no, um, I, I can prove it to you. And they're like, yes, please prove that to us. I said, okay, you're with your girlfriend and you guys are, you know, at her apartment. You guys are by yourself and lights are low and one thing starts leading to another. I don't know what y'all call it anymore because I'm not cool. Um, when, when I was in school, it had something to do with a baseball diamond, okay? But whatever it is, you're working your way around the bases and you pass the point of no return. All of a sudden, they all started nodding their heads like, that's what we're talking about right there. I was like, okay, so point of no return. When, when, when just everything inside of you is on fire and there, I mean, train has left the station. There is no way you're turning back. They're like, that's exactly what, there's no way to stop that. I said, okay, 
in that moment, at the most intense moment of your passion, in walks that girl's Navy SEAL father who just got back from Afghanistan. Bam! Off like a light switch. And one of the guys was like, that's a good point. He said, it can turn off like a light switch. I said, all right, so what changed in that moment? The sense of the presence of the Father. That's what changed. What the Spirit of God does is he makes the presence of the Father real. And he makes it felt. And as that happens, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And you don't need somebody up here yelling at you and guilting you about going. It just starts to happen because you just want to be where he is. You seek him in the gospel. Here's letter B. You seek him in the word of God. You seek him in the word of God. The primary way the spirit of God leads us is by conforming us to his word. When I was in college, I did a concordance search for the will of God. You remember the concordance? You'd actually look it up and it'd have like, remember that? It took like six hours. Um, now you just type it in on Logos, which is an excellent program. And bam, it just spits it right out for you. But I was looking up the will of God. I looked up every single place that will of God as a phrase occurred in the Bible. Here's what I found. Not one time did the Bible mean what I said when I said will of God. I always meant like, do you marry a girl A, B, C? Do you live in city D, E, F? You know, do you take job X, Y, or Z? In the Bible, the will of God almost invariably refers to something you become, not something you do. And the idea is that when you become the will of God, then you will do the will of God. So the spirit of God takes the word of God and he conforms you to the will of God, which means, by the way, you cannot know the will of God any more than you know the word of God. I talk to people all the time. She was like, I'm trying to know God's will. And I'm like, what'd you read in the Bible this morning? I didn't read the Bible this morning. I'm like, if you want to know the Spirit's guidance, don't get quiet, stare into your Cheerios and wait for a still small voice. Get on your knees and open the Bible. In the Word of God, let her see in our giftings, in our giftings, the, the, the Bible, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 12, that God has given each believer a spiritual manifestation of his presence to execute on earth. Think with me logically for a minute. How could you possibly know the will of God for your life if you don't know the gift that he's put inside of you to use in his ministry? You can't know what God wants from you if you don't even know what he's put in you. You read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, or seen the movie? There's that scene where Father Christmas shows up and he's got gifts from Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, to distribute to the children. And so he, Aslan gives to Peter a sword, he gives to uh, Susan a, a thing of ointment, um, a healing ointment, and they're like, what do these gifts mean? What are they for? And Father Christmas says, I can't tell you, you'll know. So they leave and they go, and all of a sudden they get engaged in a battle with the white witch, and Peter realizes that the sword that had been put in his hand was to lead a charge. And Lucy or Susan realizes that the healing ointment has been given to, to bind up the wounds in battle. And what Lewis was trying to show you, C.S. Lewis, was the way that you figure out what God wants from you in the battle is by looking at what he's put inside of you. Do you know what that spiritual gift is? That's what he wants you to do. Letter D, through the church. Throughout the book of Acts, the most common way that the Spirit of God speaks is through the church. To watch this, when God wants to call Paul to be a missionary, he doesn't appear to Paul. You ever see this, Acts 13 too? The Holy Spirit said to the church, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry. Which means, listen, if you are disconnected from a local church, and I don't mean like you come and sit. I mean like people know you and you're known and people can speak into your life. You've cut yourself off from the leadership and guidance of the spirit of God. So you're like, God, show me your will. And God's like, why don't you take advantage of the means that I put in your life for knowing my will? Letter E, in our spirit. This one makes me nervous, I'll be honest with you. But throughout scripture, we see God leading people by putting particular burdens on their heart. It's almost a little inexplicable, but some part of the mission begins to be a passion for you. Nehemiah is a great example. Nehemiah, the guy who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, go back and look at it later. Not one time in the book of Nehemiah does God instruct Nehemiah to build the walls in Jerusalem. All Nehemiah says is, God put it on my heart, Nehemiah 2.12. He put it on my heart. He's going to put things on your heart where maybe it's a people group, maybe it's a city, maybe it's a profession or a career field that needs the gospel. Maybe it's a ministry in your church. Maybe it's the orphan, maybe it's the homeless, maybe it's the prisoner, I don't know, but the mission suddenly becomes a passion. He's speaking in your spirit and he is moving, letter F, through our circumstances. 
Throughout the book of Acts, we see God opening doors and closing doors. And Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 16, Paul interprets some open doors as from God and some closed doors. He's like, that's the evidence. God doesn't want me to go there. Now, I want to be really clear with you and I warn you, warn you. Some of those, those last four, the subjective ones, you can get those wrong. And so you should never elevate them to the level of scripture and you should always keep them in balance with each other. That's one way to go to disaster is you elevate um, your giftings, your spirit, something in your spirit, something in the church, uh, something um, in where the other one I said, your circumstances to the level of scripture. Godly people get these things wrong. (laughs) You want an example? Not that I'm a godly person. I'll give you one for my life. My wife is sitting right here. Yes, there she is. Um, I want to make sure she hadn't left. Uh, Not me, but the sermon. But uh, so, so my wife and I had three children. And we were asking whether or not we should have another one. And so, um, you know, we, I felt like at three, my quiver was full. At no point in the week did I look around and say, I need something else to do. Um, but we also knew that having and raising godly children is one of the greatest ministries you can have. So we're like, maybe we should have one more for Jesus. And so we said, well, let's pray and ask God what he wants us to do. So April 28th or 27th. 27th of the year 2009, she and I said a day of prayer and fasting. And we prayed and fasted the whole day. Climbing into bed that night, I'm like, well, God say anything to you in your prayer and fasting? What should we do? And she said, you know, I'm feeling like maybe we ought to pursue international adoption. I said, that's strange. That's the exact same thing I was feeling. I said, tomorrow I'll start the, you know, processes, figuring out the applications. We go to bed that night. We wake up the next morning. She feels nauseous. That's right. <laughs> I had never had a prayer that I prayed answered that definitively, that quickly. (laughs) You said, what about that sense of international adoption that that was to be our next child? Well, obviously God just said, yeah, I appreciate that, but that's, I got something else right now. Um, A leader of a very famous Christian ministry, one respectable, whose name you would know, and told his staff, God has revealed to me, I'm gonna die this year. And so I gotta write my magnum opus, my book, and I gotta transfer control of my organization. He did that, wrote his book, Transfer Control because he was going to die that year. That was 18 years ago, and he's still alive and kicking. I know that because i got a friend on his staff. And you say, well, is he a flake? No. It just, this, this, it just means you never elevate it to the level of Scripture, and you always keep it subject to the Word, but you don't want to go to the opposite extreme and just discount that God is leading and guiding and that what he is calling you to do is follow him. Listen, I don't mean this to be controversial, but the Holy Spirit shows up 59 times in the book of Acts, 59 times. In 36 of the 59, he is speaking. I I realize that Acts, there are some things happening that are different than how we experience today. The apostles were different. They could write the Bible. Okay, I I get that. But you cannot convince me that the only book that God gave us that describes for us what it looks like to walk in the Spirit is filled with stories of people who have experiences nothing in common with our own. I'm sorry, that doesn't fly with me. John Newton, you know John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace? This is a Puritan, okay? This is not a, you know, modern day TV preaching, uh, coiffed hair, wife looks like she lost a paintball war, you know, drives a van with flames coming down the side. This is not, you know, that kind of, this is a Puritan. John Newton said, commentary in 1 John, he said, how would it be possible that that which was so essential to the success of the early church has become irrelevant to us in our day? That is the leadership and the communion and the fellowship of the spirits. When Jesus called you to follow him, he said, follow me. By the way, Dr. Aiken, I learned this in the research for this book. This is a little, I get a little tweaked when I say it, but it's true. You know what denomination per capita does the best job of mobilizing people for mission? Pentecostals. Now, let me tell you why that tweaks me. Because missions belongs to us Baptists. And here's what really tweaks me. is all the great mission speakers, they're all Baptists. Think about it. Go in your head. Go name the top three mission speakers you know. They're all Baptists. Why is it that we have all the great mission speakers, but they do an even better job mobilizing? And what I was reading basically helped me understand that the difference is when a Baptist talks about the mission... What we talk about are 2.2 billion people in need of the gospel. We talk about 100,000 children who died last week of hunger-related diseases. And by the way, we need to hear that, and our hearts need to break, and it needs to bleed. 
But when Pentecostals talk, they also talk about the Spirit of God having put something inside of you. And see, the weight of the mission can crush you because it's 5,000 people in front of you. What do I have among so many? And you begin to get paralyzed, but the gifting of the Spirit empowers you. The weight of the mission will crush you. The empowerment of the Spirit will, the empowerment of the Spirit will free you. So you and I have to start saying, Lord, what do you want from me? Lord, it's a blank check. You want to know what it means to come to God? You don't bring him all your gifts and all your awesomeness and say, where? Hey, look, Lord, I got a huge old lunch here. Man, I brought like enough for 10 people. Where can I serve? No, you come to him and say, I got five loaves and two fish. That's not enough to feed a little boy. Why don't you take it? And you show me where to go. And you give God what we call a blank check. You know what a blank check is? I know we don't use checks. You've probably never seen a check, but um, a check is something you write, you know, and like, so when you give somebody a blank check, we used to do this all the time. I'm like, you know, Nate's going to buy something for me and we don't know how much to call. So I write him a check and I just sign my name. I love Nate, but I'm telling you, man, I hand him that check and all of a sudden it's like, I'm not sure about our relationship because I know that Nate can go right over to the bank and he can write it for whatever I got in the bank and it's all his. It's scary. It is scary to write a blank check to Jesus. It feels good to offer God a gift card, right? Hey, God, you can have this two years. God, you know, hey, God, I'll do this. You know, but for you to come to him and say, Lord, here it is. Here's my signature. Why don't you tell me what to do with it? That's terrifying. And you only do it if you trust Jesus. Have you ever, listen, have you ever given God a blank check? Because ultimately your spread of the glory of God on this earth begins with you yielding yourself to the spirit of God. Why don't you bow your heads, our worship team, they're going to come back up here. Might we do that right at this very moment? Let me make sure you understand that your relationship with God does not begin with you giving a blank check to him. However, it begins with you understanding that Jesus paid it all for you, that he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He doesn't save you because you become super engaged in mission. He saves you because you admit that you can't save yourself, and he did it all, and it's a gift. I imagine that a group this size, there might be one, two, there might be a dozen people who have never trusted Jesus Christ personally. And so right now, maybe that's you, and you need to say, Lord Jesus, yes, I receive you. And in response to that, I give you a blank check with my life. If you've never done that, would you say that to him right now from your heart? Lord Jesus, I surrender. Lord Jesus, I receive the gift that you are offering to me. I want to be saved. What a great way to start this weekend. If you know you've made that decision, I'm going to invite you just again to say, Lord Jesus, visualize it. I know it's childish, but visualize a blank check that represents your life. You think about putting your signature on it and you say, Jesus, anywhere, anytime, you cash it. You show me how my life can best be used in your mission. Father, I pray that as we walk through this weekend with you, Father, I pray, I pray that you would have your way, that like Samuel, we would say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Anywhere, anytime, Spirit of God, I pray that you would guide. I pray that you would raise up leaders. I pray that you would raise up those who will do more than John the Baptist. Nations that'll be changed, careers that'll be changed, cities in the United States that'll be changed because they just said yes to you. Have your way. Have your way, Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name.